The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, I've found it, but that's funny. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do, 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 Isaac Asimov. Oh, yeah, baby space. Isaac Asimov. That is a good quote, isn't it? My favourite quote about Isaac Asimov is someone said it was the worst 10 minutes of his life when he had writer's block. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would upset many an author. He's the most prolific writer of all time. He's just, it's just ridiculous. he He can bash it out, so to speak. It's not just science fiction. So Matt, I'd like to do an I'd like to do a, a feature called On This Day. Okay, what what happened on this day, Jamie? Well, 1954, 30th of November, mm-hmm. in Alabama, United States, uh, the Hodges meteorite crashes through a roof and hits a woman taking an afternoon nap. This is still the only documented case in Western Hemisphere of a human being hit by a rock from space. Wow. You would have thought there's, there'd be more of them. Yeah, well, considering how many tons of material fall to Earth every day from outer space. Yeah, it's pretty lucky. Then, Although not lucky for no, her. Ri- That's quite a rude awakening from a nap, although I'm sure she didn't know much about well, it. Well, that will teach her for going for an afternoon nap, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just plain lazy. That's very cruel. People very out there, cruel. pull yourself together. There we go. Well, I, I'm going to give another on this day. Go on. 20 years ago on the 30th November, we had uh-huh. STS-27, the Atlantis. On board was a chap called William Shepard, and it was his first space mission, and it only lasted 105 hours. However, from October the 31st in 2000, he and a couple of uh, Russian cosmonauts were the first people to man the ISS. There we go, on Oof. Expedition 1. Yeah, that's big, isn't it? That's cool, isn't it? We've just had the 20th anniversary of the ISS. Imagine being the first people to go in. New home in space. Wow. Well, William Shepard doesn't have to imagine that. He doesn't need to. No. He lived it. And neither neither does Yuri Gidzenko and Sergei Grigolov. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure the the Russians would would love us for for that accent. No, I think that's pretty much bang on, Jamie. Yeah, what is our mission of the week? Well, it has to be something that just puts a great big old fat smile on my face, Mm -hmm. and that's insight. Oh God, yes. The eighth time NASA has successfully landed on Mars. I mean, no one's no one's done what they've done. No, I mean, no. it's bloody hard to land on another planet, let alone Mars. Yeah. Eighth time. Eighth time. They're banging them out, aren't they? Yeah. So here we go. Let's yeah, have go. a little look hit at me, it. Hit me, hit me. On Podcast 62, Matt, if you can remember, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm... is a while ago now. Back in January, we announced that Insight was ready to launch in a 30-day uh, window that opens on May the 5th. So, Matt, by Podcast 80, Insight had launched with the universe's first interplanetary CubeSats, Marco A and B, on May the 5th, 2018, at 11.05. So where is it? What's happened to it now? 
Well, as of this podcast, which is 109, we're bashing them out, Matt, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. At approximately 1952 UTC on 26th of November 2018, the InSight rover landed on Mars. So solar panels deployed, a literal potential sticking point. Yeah. Uh, so they've done it. No other space agency other than NASA has achieved a successful landing on Mars and science mission on Mars. It's just incredible. What a feat. Well done, NASA. No, absolutely. I did. I had a little bit of a kind of Twitter spat. Uh, I was. I, I sent a sort oh. of jokey, jokey tweet to Eric Berger, and then and then someone thought I was being like jingoistic because I mentioned Beagle Two. Beagle Two, I thought was missing from what Eric's article had um, mentioned. He said that there was only one European attempt, but I think there's two if you have Beagle Two and Chaparelli. So right. that was my kind of point. But uh, the headline seemed to suggest that no one had made a successful landing on mars but i think a successful landing isn't necessarily you have to then complete some science because mm. agreed of course beagle 2 named after darwin's ship of course the british colin pillinger led mars lander uh, that went with um uh, mars express in 2003 obviously that land well everyone thought at the time that it had crashed into the planet and was lost forever but it turns out in 2015, just after Colin Pillinger's death, they discovered that actually the Beagle 2 had landed okay, but the solar panels hadn't opened up, which was which is why ah. we said it was a sticking point earlier on. Yes. It's like, actually, you can successfully land on Mars, but it's, it's not over yet. You still have to commission all your That's um, it, all the experimental hard hardware. Mm. Yeah, so which, of course, uh, Insight still has to do. It's got it's got three month commissioning, but yes, NASA have certainly absolutely smashed it out of the park because they are the only people with working landers on on Mars. So that's Viking One and Two, Pathfinder, Spirit and Opportunity, Phoenix, and of course Curiosity, and now Insight. It's uh, just amazing. I but- loved watching the guys in HQ just the, their faces because you can imagine that the hard work that's gone into it and mm. then the, the just the relief and the joy of seeing it successful amazing yeah. someone pointed out that they were all wearing red shirts and yeah, what, what a surprise and what a surprise it was that none of them died I guess that's a reference to Star Trek. Um, yes, yeah, that must be. <laughs> I'm going to do a little shout out though to Mars 3. So Mars 3 on Sunday will be having its 47th anniversary. And Mars 3, after aerodynamic braking, parachutes, retro rockets, and this was 47 years ago, did actually achieve the very first soft landing on Mars. And it's a Russian spacecraft. It then succeeded in sending a half-finished picture of practically nothing (laughs) But Oof. it did land softly and did manage to send a picture from the, from the surface of Mars. And that was 47 years ago. And it did all the same things, aerodynamic braking, parachutes, retro rockets, all that kind of stuff. It's amazing, isn't it? The Russians were insane. really, really on it at that point. And that's 47 years ago. Wow. What happened? But, yeah. Well, I should point out that uh, NASA have had some turkeys as well. There was the absolutely horrible Mars Climate Orbiter, 
and due to some Lockheed Martin engineers mixing up English units with metric units, it just oh. burnt up in the atmosphere of Mars. Yeah, that's not good. It's Ouch. just not good. Uh, so, so, Matt, Mars 2 and 3 also contained the first mini Mars rovers, although Ooh. they were completely broken on landing. Do you remember that? Well, well, I, I'd, well no, I didn't. But since reading about Insight and then thinking, well, what else landed on Mars? I, I, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, little little rovers back 47 years ago, almost 50 years ago. God love them. So back to Insight, mm-hmm. the mission will determine if there's any seismic activity. Uh, so measure the rate of heat flow from the interior, uh, estimate the size of Mars's core and whether the core is liquid or solid. This data will be the first of its kind for, for Mars itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also expected that a frequent uh, meteor air bursts can be used to gather more info. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, how much do we know about the interior of Mars thus far? Nothing. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much nothing well this is this is big uh so using a seismometer called seis size size produced by the french space agency kines mm-hmm. with the help from many institutes including an imperial college um a heat probe called a hp3 that's your favorite type isn't it matt yeah yeah the hp i think it's hp that's right. cubed even what whoa <laughs> and this is produced by the german space agency dlr to study the planet's early geological evolution. Uh, so the HP3 uh, is another German mole, like the one we talked about last week, Matt, uh, going to Enceladus. What is it with the Germans and the moles? This is your English mole, no? <laughs> uh, so mole. measurements mar- uh, measurements Mars quakes, crust thickness, mantle viscosity core radius and density and other seismic activity should also bring a new deeper understanding of the other terrestrial planets mercury venus earth and mars i mean this is this is going to be some incredible data isn't it matt like you say it's not like we know a great deal already it really is super super cool because it does tell us so much more about our own planet because you've got because yeah. uh, cuz when, when you've only got like a sample pool of one it's quite hard to tell what's going on. So we're quite lucky to have mm. other things in the solar system that we can increase our sample size by. So Absolutely. I find a really fascinating thing is how they chose the landing site for InSight. Mm. So it actually, what they've actually done is tried to find somewhere that's really actually quite boring. So they're not because they're not looking for surface features. They're not looking. I was going to say. So you're looking for somewhere. When you say boring, you mean just like flat, flat. um, Not much about. Yeah. So it 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 has to be well. There's there's a few criteria that are really really okay. Let's go through them. Yeah. So it needs to be very near the equator, so that it gets sunlight all year round. Right. So the so it's run on solar panels, so it needs that sunlight. It. This is my favourite. It needs to be very low in elevation, because the insight needed as much atmosphere as possible to slow down. So if it was up a mountain it would hit the mountain too fast because it hasn't had enough time to slow down through the atmosphere yet. So it has to be a very low elevation. That's fascinating, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, it needs to be flat, of course, so it, so that uh, InSight can land and get a proper 
landing on the ground with all its feet on the ground and not be propped up by one rock somewhere. Uh-huh. And, and it also needs to be soft, really soft, gravelly kind of uh, terrain so that the heat probe, the little German mole, can penetrate well into the ground. So all that led to a place called the Elysium Planetia. Oh. And all 22 initial landing sites were located in Elysium Planetia. Well, I love that. Mm-hmm. Well, what a great subject Mars is in terms of the fundamental processes of shaping planetary formation. Tell me why. Tell me why. Let me let me, let me go through this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mars may contain the most in-depth and accurate historical record. Mm-hmm. It's big enough to have undergone the earliest accretion and internal heating processes that shaped our rocky planets, of course, mm-hmm. and small enough to have retained signs of those processes. This sounds a little bit like Jamie Franklin. Small but perfectly formed. Big enough to do a podcast, small enough to climb through toilet windows. Yeah, I can't anymore. I've had too many Mars bars this winter. (laughs) So odd. My favorite bit of insight is the 2.4 meter robotic arm that's used to deploy all these crazy instruments, the SEIS and the HP cubed onto the surface. So it kind of, it's got an arm that can put it down in the exact place. It's a good arm. Yeah. There's a couple of cameras, the IDC, the instrument deployment camera, that's obviously on the end of the on the on the end of this arm so we can actually see what it's doing and the instrument context camera which is on the lander's deck now one of those cameras took a picture on the lander's immediate what? deck oh sorry carry on uh yeah it's dangling below uh <laughs> the <laughs> one of those cameras took a picture immediately after landing and of course it was very funny because they have it said it's still got the dust cap on and I'd never even thought about a dust cap yeah. that's transparent. Yeah, of course. Amazing. It's like, oh, you've got a transparent dust cap. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, and the other thing I completely forgot is that my name is now on Mars. Go on. I put my name on this thing called a boarding pass on Insight. I remember filling it in now. And, uh, yeah, it's etched onto a tiny little chip by an electron beam. And so my name is in one thousandth the width of a human hair onto the, a tiny, the eight millimeter silicon wafer. I, wow! Yeah, along with how many other names? <laughs> uh, Two point four million. Matt, tell me you added my name too. Um, I think I told you about it at the time, or maybe I didn't, so I could have maybe this I, funny conversation right maybe now I about did do how that. I'm on Mars and you're not. Oh, I'm on just going to. I'm just going to tell people I've done it. Yeah, just tell them you've done it. It's fine. Easy. I'm Jamie, fine with ta- that. <laughs> no, Jamie, Jamie, you mentioned yeah. the universe's first interplanetary CubeSats. Tell me a yeah. little bit more about them. Well, Marco A and B, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Mars Cube 1, Marco, spacecraft, are a pair of 6U CubeSats that hitched a lift with insight to test CubeSat navigation and endurance in deep space is what they're going to be doing. Relay real-time communications during the probe's entry, descent and landing, uh, EDL phase. Eight-minute delay to get the signal back to Earth. So mm-hmm. it's not bad considering the distance, Matt, is it? Eight well, minutes. I, I, well, I'll be telling you about how, how ace that actually is. Uh, they were not captured by Mars Gravity well after their epic 53 million mile journey and will continue to orbit the Sun. What do you reckon, Matt? Are they going to crash into old uh, Elon Starman? 
Would it be funny if they did? <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, I mean, I reckon be a hell the chances, of a collision, of, wouldn't it? Yeah, be the chances. What are the chances of that? It'd be ace if they got really close and could take a picture. I'm sure some nerd pants. out there will actually tell us the chances. Well, Jonathan McDowell will definitely tell us yeah. what the chances. Go on, are. Jonathan. This is your homework. Yeah. But here's here's a really interesting fact. So, as during the EDL, as you said, uh, Insight transmits uh, all the data or its telemetry on uh, on a UHF radio band to the mm-hmm. uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO. Yes. And then that forwards that telemetry back to Earth using its X-band radio transmitter. But the MRO can't receive information on one band while transmitting on another. So if it had just been that, the JPL engineers would have had to have waited an hour, probably about an hour, to hear the news about whether Insight had landed properly. But Marco have got these uh, sort of uh, softball-sized radios that can receive and transmit at the same time, and so we're able to relay those pictures really, really quickly. And Yeah, and as they flew off, uncaptured by, as you said, Mars's gravity well, they took a picture of Mars and uh, and, uh, are now flying into solar orbit as we speak. Oh, I like that. Well, Matt, do you know about the uh, other NASA spacecraft? Osiris Rex? Well, thank God you said it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Matt, check this out. It's now only about 60 kilometres from Bennu. Mm-hmm. And we'll enter thirty-five, enter the thirty-five-kilometer hill sphere of the asteroid on December the first. Whoa! That neatly brings us to space. Space word, word of, of the, week. the week, which is hill sphere. Well, it's hill sphere, isn't hill sphere, it? Hill sphere. It is only Talk radically is. So a hill sphere approximates the gravitational sphere of influence of a smaller body in the face of perturbations from a more massive body. So, yeah, so how can it be retained by a planet? A moon must have an orbit that lies within the planet's hill sphere. But that moon could also have its own hill sphere, so any object within that distance could then become a moon of the moon, if you see what I mean. And so as long as an object is orbiting... Yeah, so as long, so as long as an object is is within the hill sphere, plenty within the hill sphere, it will orbit that object rather than the bigger object. So obviously, take the sun, earth and moon, the earth is in orbit around the sun because it's inside the hill sphere of the sun, but the moon is inside the hill sphere of the earth, so orbits the earth. It's defined by the American astronomer George William Hill, hence hill sphere, uh, but it was based on Edouard Roche. And so sometimes, so sometimes called the Roche sphere, and that's not to be confused with the Roche limit, which Please is don't where confuse them. no, where the gravitational forces that hold a moon together, i.e., the gravity that makes it a kind of a clump of rock, um, are overcome by the tidal forces if if it gets too close to the to the parenting body, uh, and of course that's going to happen to Mars's moons. They're going to get ripped apart by tidal forces eventually and become a sort of tiny ring system around Mars. Oh, you know I love a ring system. Exactly. Well, Matt, with the Earth's hill sphere, it lies within the L1 and L2 Lagrange points, 
your your favourite points. My favourite, my favourite points. And of course, the our moon orbits well inside this, but mm-hmm. correct. The moon is slowly drifting away, Ooh. and just under four centimeters a year. So we'll fall outside of the hill sphere at some point and leave us. Where's it going to go? Uh, do you know what this is? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so, and and I'm going to explain why. Maybe but not it, in our lifetime. But it, go on then. <laughs> maybe not in our lifetime. I would go as far as saying definitely not in our lifetime. Um, but he, here's why. So the moon, the, the moon is, as you said, moving away from Earth due to the tidal interactions. So mm-hmm. roughly speaking, moon the moon's gravity exerts, ex, is basically causing a drag on the Earth's rotation. But then the Earth's gravity is exerting a pull on the Earth that then it expands its orbit. So mm. as this happens, they'll eventually both be tidally locked. So this is ages and ages and ages, well, 50 billion years away. The Earth will have slowed down to a 47-day rotation. So days will take 47 days, which is a bit confusing. And the moon will orbit on a 47-day orbit. So eventually they will just face each other. And at that point, you you no longer have this kind of um, uh, drag, tidal drag, tidal interaction between the two. So the moon will actually stop drifting away after after fifty billion years of drifting away. Uh, but then this Bloody is the crazy hell. bit. Yeah. So the Earth will be slowing down due to the sun. So the sun is obviously uh, slowing down the Earth this kind of, with tidal forces. And so the moon will start drifting inwards because the Earth will 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 be will be taking energy off it, and so it will start drifting inwards, reach the Roche limit, and then will become a tiny ring system around the Earth. Matt, by the time that that all happens, do you mm-hmm. reckon that you will have bought me back that pint of Guinness that I bought you two years ago? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So I thought we said on our Sun episode, mm-hmm. uh, starting in about five billion years the sun will swell up into a red giant Mm -hmm. at the peak of its expansion it may well swallow the earth and the moon yeah so to be honest i doubt the earth will ever get its rings jamie it never get its ring i know you like i know you like the rings but it's all about the rings i just want some art is it too much to ask for our planet to have some ice rings i think it is (laughs) i worked hard we're definitely i think the the when the sun expands into a red giant all bets are off i'm afraid Uh, Um, fair enough yeah but anyway the hill sphere is it's only an approximation so other forces like the yarkovsky effect can eventually pull something out of that sphere of influence so really for something to to be stably in an orbit it has to be it has to be inside a half to a third of the hill radius right yeah and i've got you. i've got some i've got some interesting facts so in low earth orbit if you had a spherical body it's got to be denser than lead if you're able to have an orbiting body outside it right so Whoa. you so as an astronaut you can't orbit the space shuttle because it's just not dense enough but a spherical object out at geostationary satellite uh, distance could you could you could have a little moon around a geostationary satellite. Hang That's on a cool, minute, isn't Matt. It? Yeah. With you, where you mentioned spherical body, is this you mocking me having too many Mars bars <laughs> in the last couple of months? Again, it, it because is I ab- told you it's important for us to keep warm in these cold months. And you're pretty dense. 
That's true. That is right. true. Have you got a better? Have you got a better HSF or Hill Sphere well, fact? I'm going to throw one at you. Let's see yeah. what you think of this. Mm-hmm. What body in the solar system has the largest Hill Sphere? Ooh. Well, I want to say Jupiter. Right. Right. Presumably that is because that's like. Well, Matt, you're wrong. Oh. It's Neptune because it's so far away from the sun. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Jupiter, Matt, comes fourth and Iris, yes, Iris, fifth. That is mad. Mad, huh? <laughs> that is mad. So Neptune's got the biggest hill sphere, I'm, I'm assuming, other than the sun. Well, yeah. you'll find yeah. out next week. Dude, what a cliff edge dude, that dude, is. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> It's right, like the end okay. of Neighbours used to be. Remember that? Uh, yeah, no, no, oh. absolutely. No, no, Jamie, answer me yeah. this, and I love this story. Go on. If you had some antimatter, would it be repelled by gravity? Or like matter, be attracted by it? What do you think? What Ooh. do you think? Uh, I'm going to say repelled. Whoa. Think about what that means. So, yeah, actually, no one really knows for sure. So they are actually testing this right now in the Large Hadron Collider. And they've got to hurry up because it's going to be shut down for two years uh, in the next couple of weeks to for, for uh, improvements to be made. But, yeah, they're, they're doing this alpha and G-bar experiments where they're actually measuring antimatter. And I think it's anti anti-helium atoms or anti-hydrogen atoms, I think, that they're trying to make and then measure how they actually interact with gravity. But, that is mad. Yeah. Now, now, even small differences might actually really help us understand, say, quantum, ga- quantum gravity. But if it really does repel uh, antimatter gravity, that it could be the most significant uh, advance in rocketry since the rocket... <laughs> Yeah, it would be I ridiculous. Mean, yeah, I mean, you could have absolutely vast objects and not worry about how annoying the rocket equation is. So on that note, you could get something like a world ship going. Say what? Say what? Ship? World ship. Hey, Matt, before we talk about world ships, you know you mentioned mm-hmm. G-Bar. Yeah. There's a few G-Bars in Brighton that, that I've been to. Really? <laughs> are they measuring uh antimatter and gravity they're, they're measuring my spherical body um so matt back to world ships i bet you've fallen ship. down a few times in there <laughs> so world ships or generation starship mm. a variation on the ship that is featured in passengers and i know you love that mm-hmm. uh it's an interstellar arc starship that might take centuries or thousands of years to reach even the nearby star. Uh, the original occupants of a generation ship would grow old and die, leaving their descendants to continue travelling. Oh man, there's so much to talk about this. Check it's that out. Crazy, it's a crazy concept, the, the, the generation ship. So yeah, Robert H. Goddard, of course, the pioneer of liquid rocket technology, was the mm-hmm. first to write about that in his interstellar journeys in The Last Migration back in 1918. That's incredible. And, and he sort of, uh, that's where he described where the, where the sun was going to die. 
and we needed mm-hmm. an interstellar arc, and the crew would face centuries of travel by sleeping and would be awakened when they reached another star system. So, so that's a bit more like Passengers. Solkovsky, of course, the creator of the rocket equation, also described it in in uh, in the future of Earth and mankind in 1928, and again talked about a ship that was like Noah's Ark. However, a 1929 essay, "The World, the Flesh, and the Devil," by J. D. Bernal, is considered the first real description of a generation ship. And just bear in mind that the rocket equation had only just been sort of formulated and everyone was like pretty depressed because it's a pretty depressing equation. But also aeroplanes had only just come on the scene and you've got these people thinking about how to get to other star systems. And that tradition has been kept on by legends like Gregory Matloff, who uh, writes all the time in JBIS, and of course, Alan Bond, who his concept is the the incredible Alan Bond, whose concept he called the world ship. He did, but I mean, Matt, this is a huge engineering challenge, of course, but surely Mm. it's a bigger social challenge, no? Uh, Absolutely. What are the main engineering problems and human problems that need to be sorted? Well, first of all, biosphere, creating Mm -hmm. a mini Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine sending thousands of people into space and one system failing and all of them dying. Well, it's, it's the systems hideous. in place would have to be ridiculous, just just out of this world, literally out of this world, good. Um, so I want to know, has an experiment ever been done where thousands of humans live for thousands of years in total isolation with no help or no resources from a wider world? The answer is no, that I'm aware of. <laughs> no, um, it'd be very, know, very hard to run that kind of experiment. It would be hard, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I mean, well, we talked about Biosphere 2 uh, mm. previously on a, on a podcast, and just how hard it is to do anything we have to, when we have to go a long way, and, mm. and when it comes to being self-sustained. It yeah. looks like you would have to build a vast mini-Earth in all reality to make this happen. Yeah. Do you know the weirdest fact I found while looking this up, by the way? Biosphere 2, for a short period, was run by Stephen Bannon. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, that. (laughs) And and it was, yeah, apparently it was such a bad sort of thing at the time that some of the staff that got fired tried to invade the biosphere to warn the crew that they were in danger. What? (laughs) I know. What's so bizarre, isn't it? But and anyway, so one of course one one of the big things you got to look about is human biology and sustainable population. So something that I genuinely has always fascinated me. I remember my mum talking to me about it when I was a little when I was a little kid because she was mm-hmm. massively into human biology, and she was always going on about what's the kind of minimum amount of people you can have to maintain a genetically diverse human race where you're not right. basically essentially eventually marrying your siblings in genetics terms right and then the deadly gene gets you and it's and it but the science on this is actually amazingly undecided so um there's the uh, one of the things that 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 gets touted quite a lot is the toba catastrophe ever heard of this no so in the 90s uh there was uh, the toba catastrophe theory that suggested about 70,000 years ago, the human population was reduced to about 1,000 to 10,000 breeding pairs of humans. 
um, when the Toba supervolcano in Indonesia erupted. So that's a massively close call to the human race being totally wiped out. Ooh. Yeah. Well, we think we know that that uh, between 1,000 and 10,000 breeding pairs of humans is enough to maintain the population. However, a guy called John Moore, who's an anthropologist, said for a 200-year journey, you would only really need a population of about 160 people. And it, and it would allow for a fairly normal family life. Um, and there'd be no need for sperm banks and things like that. Uh, right. And he reckoned if, if you had social engineering and you were sort of saying, well, you've got to marry her and you've got to marry him and you've got to marry her and you've got to marry him and you've got to have this amount of kids with her, and th- then you could get it down to 80 people. But, wow. Yes. Well, but this is how undecided the science appears to be. In 2013, yeah, Cameron Smith massively disagreed, basically. So he created this big computer model and estimated that the reasonable population actually needs to be in the tens of thousands. So, uh, and, and he basically took into consideration like outbreaks of disease, catastrophes, and things like that. So we're absolutely nowhere, uh, nowhere near answering just that basic biological question of how many humans do you need on a generation ship? Well, we're definitely not close at all. And Matt, if you no. think about sociology, it's mm-hmm. even more controversial. Uh, might even be immoral. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, generation ships traveling for long periods of time may see breakdowns in social structures, and of course, mutiny on the bounty. Um, Fletcher! I was going to say, this is your chance for your Anthony Hopkins impression. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Fletcher! So, Robert A... Is it Heinlein, Matt? Yeah, Heinlein. Robert A. Heinlein's Orphans of the Sky is a great exploration of this. Everyone splits into tribes, and the final destination is completely forgotten about, and only the internal ship's reality is important. Uh, Mm. Well, it's just it's just oh, rank, God. isn't it? <laughs> imagine it. Imagine imagine being brought up on a generation ship, and you're basically you're just. But that's it. You told what job you got. You got. Oh, oh and by the way, you're oh, dying God. on the ship. Imagine you're, it. You're not. You're not. Your your whole life actually. The only purpose of it is for someone generations down the line. It's really worth looking at all these things because it kind of shed some light on on some of the things that are going on yeah, here true. on Earth. Some of the children on board the generation ship, despite these kind of hideous ethical problems, are actually going to be better off than, say, poor people on Earth. You know, just that, just because they're locked into a project they didn't choose, they still have better education, Food. medical care, yeah. nutrition, and all that. So, you know, maybe they're better off. So... I think the ethics is going to depend massively on on what you do, what the actual goal of your generation ship is. If it's just like, oh, let's just go out there, then maybe it's ethically too over the top. But however, if it's to save the human race, obviously it's got to be pretty um, important. And, and I'll tell you what, something we talked about ages ago on the podcast, which is still one of my favorite things that I've learned while doing this yeah. podcast, is the weight is the weight equation. Where basically, if you say, oh, yeah, it's going to take 200 years to get to that star. So everyone sets off in their generation ship, hideous uh-huh. journey. And like like five generations later, they get to the star, only to find there's loads of humans there. It's like, oh, yeah, 50 years after you set out, 
we developed a much better space oh so yeah you, you've you've completely I mean, wasted at least your time. they could pick them up along the way that's selfish oh god can you imagine how horrible it would be so imagine all the way there you thought oh you you, you were basically you were born on a spacecraft and you think well at least i'm going to get to be proxima centuries neil armstrong well matt there are some so interesting annoying. variations on the generation ship the Mathusula ship did i pronounce that right yeah yeah the Mathusula. there we ship. go yeah, yeah so where people are programmed to stop aging and therefore the first generation survives the whole trip taking away some of the ethical issues well yeah <laughs> yeah some more questions there yeah you've got the sleeper ship so that's like the mm. passengers one um but i guess really everyone's dead so it's a more of a tomb ship um mm. It's a lot less demanding than a Methuselah ship, but requires a kind of similar uh, unbelievable technology and, and grasp over genetics. Does your body hair still grow if you're in the, in the deep sleep? Oh, no. I'll tell, tell you what's a really interesting one, other than your body hair. No, I'd imagine you're completely dead, right? So you have to be kind imagine of Imagine the beard dead. after 200 years. Well, yeah, it'd be ridiculous. But I tell you what's really weird. So inside your body, you've actually got a little bit of radiation. So mm. you're, you, you've actually, internally, there's radiation. And, of course, the dose is absolutely tiny, so your body's able to repair itself all the time from the, it is. From the tiny amount of radiation. However, if you're asleep for, a, for tens of thousands of years or thousands of years, that radiation dose internally would be fatal. Because of course you're not repairing yourself, hmm. and so it would you would wake up dead basically. <laughs> <laughs> that's so a song that's, title if ever I had one, Matt. So yeah, just because you're in stasis doesn't actually yeah you have to make sure that you're not exposed to any time related process because of course while you're not living, you're eroding from other things, and one of the most dangerous being this kind of internal um, internal radiation source. Well, Matt. How about the seed ship that just mm-hmm. goes first and terraforms, plants stuff, and even carries the ability to grow humans and teach them? Yeah, dun, see, dun, dun. I th- I think they're more feasible. Actually, I think all these ones like data ships as well, a bit like seed ships, where you basically instead of trying to get human fleshy things across the the galaxy, mm. you just send vast mechanical things to these places, and then you can actually beam. Uh, across the galaxy, all the information about humans and stuff on a laser, and maybe sort of like grow people that way, and and therefore the spaceships don't need to be these vast kilometer long, um, you know, hundreds of kilometers long spacecraft. That's right. So yeah, you, you could just have these tiny things. There's a great quote, by the way. We we're talking earlier about how I think it's really important that we study because. There's a little bit of me that always thinks about these kind of speculative science things about things like mm. world ships. Like, oh, come on, this is like, we've got other things to think about. But actually, I think they, I think it is important to think about these because it does shed some light on on loads of different things that you would never th- think about otherwise. It's almost like what I like about very good sci-fi, like like your kind of Arthur C. Clarke, Carl Sagan style sci-fi, where it's making you think about human things in a kind of science fiction way because it's giving you a kind of another substrate to think about it. But anyway, there's a quote from Anthony Martin. Yeah. 
It says, if the world ship concept survives the scrutiny intact, even if modified in detail, then the fundamental questions raised by the possibility of interstellar travel and colonisation about the apparent absence of extraterrestrial intelligence in the solar neighbourhood, about the future of mankind and about its place in the universe will become more demanding of an answer. Ooh, so it I does. It kind that. of does. It does put our place in the universe very, very much as a kind of thing that we need to think about. It is absolutely true. If you can build a world ship, wouldn't you just build a world and then just live in that? Because <laughs> there's plenty <laughs> of room in the solar system, isn't there? Mm. I mean, there's so much room in the solar system. So presumably people start building huge worlds before they start building world ships. Do you know what I mean? Kind of. You mean build another world on another planet first? Well, no, not build another world on another planet. Build another planet. I mean, that's what we're saying, isn't it? Is that these world ships, Earth itself is a world ship, if you think of it. It's a generation ship. It's like, Yeah, but surely it's, it's easier to build a ship than a planet, no? I don't know. Well, how big is it? <laughs> like these, these, these generation ships almost have to be, like they have to be completely self-sustaining. You have to have entire ecosystems that work. And if there's if there's tens of thousands of people living on this thing, how massive does it have to be? And therefore, what's the point of sending them to another solar system when they can just live on the ship? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's making my head hurt. But Matt, I'll tell you what the answer is. Uh, to mm-hmm. the Fermi paradox, right? Mm-hmm. It's just too horrible to get on a ship knowing that you and the and the few generations of children grandchildren etc are going to die on the ship and even though many ships have left before yours you've never heard back from any of them and you certainly wouldn't know if they got to the destination that's kind of horrible isn't it (laughs) yeah just getting on a ship with absolutely no guarantees the only guarantee being that you're going to die on the ship although what guarantees do we have matt in life eh Mm-hmm. please send us your comments is there anything that we've kind of missed out on this yeah 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 it's a very interesting topic i i when you at first glance it's like this is a silly topic but no when you actually look at it there's some there's some brilliant issues lots exactly. to think about there really you could, is you could you could write essays and essays about any individual part of it send us your essays at uh interplanetary no you don't have to yes i think you should <laughs> <laughs> i think you should uh uh Jamie, I've got some other space news. Let's bang it out. André Hubert Roussel, I like to think Mm -hmm. he's a kind of French relative. (laughs) Yes. He has been appointed by the Ariane Group Uh as the new chief executive officer. As of January the 1st, 2019, he's going to replace Alain Charmeur, a founder of the Ariane Group, who will Uh retire after a transition period. So that's big news, isn't it, in the old Ariane Ariane world. Uh, he's currently the head of operations at Airbus Defence and Space. So I think he's pretty well qualified. And I'm quickly going to run through the super launches this week because there's some absolute bang out launches. So SpaceX Block 5, that's going to be yeah. delivering 90, play, 90 payloads on the Sherpa Space Tug, which we talked about on episode 98 when nice. Space Tug was a space word of the week. Uh, two days later, we're going to have very, very, very stressful launch of Oleg Gunonenko and rookies Anne McLean and NASA, uh, from NASA and Canadian David Saint-Jacques. 
uh-huh. on a Soyuz back to the ISS. Yeah. So that's going to be pretty exciting. Luca Parmitano is part of the backup crew for that. Welcome. Uh, and then next day, we're going to have a CRS-16, of course, SpaceX up on another Falcon 9. Uh, that's going along to the ISS, so straight on the heels of the Soyuz. And Ariane 5 carrying GSAT-11 which was, of course, that massively delayed Indian satellite after the loss of GSAT-6. And then yes. on the 7th of November, we have a Delta IV Heavy that's carrying the KH-11 Kennan or Crystal, which is basically a massive spy satellite that's just like the Hubble telescope, except it points down to the Earth. I love that. I mean, what an image. So... Quick one. Let's do quick space fact of the week, Jamie. Have you got time? Uh, It's going to have to be so quick, man. (laughs) Okay. Space fact of the week. At a nano, nano, one billionth time, one billionth scale, the Earth is as small as an atom, right? Imagine the Earth Mm -hmm. is as small as an atom. The solar system is too small to see. But the brightest star, Sirius, is three inches away. The stars in the Big Dipper are two or four feet away. Polaris is 13 feet away. The Milky Way is half a mile wide. Andromeda is 17 miles away. The nearest galaxies in the Sculptor Group are 60 miles away. That's if the Earth was the size of an atom, i.e. 1,000th of the width of a human, a very thin human hair. (laughs) Okay, I'm off to wipe the blood from my ears. Nice. My brain's exploded, Matt. Right, guys, that's it for today. You know what to do. iTunes, five-star review, please, if Mm -hmm. if you like it. And, uh, you know, let's hear your comments. If you'd like to become a Patreon, please do. Matt, what are you up to now? I'm off to watch uh, Silent Runnings. Really? I'm off to... No, but I wish I was. Yeah, no, I wish I was. I've got to now do some tutorials. Never-ending tutorials. I'd like everyone to have a great weekend. Please (laughs) comment and let us know what you thought of this uh, crazy podcast. And uh, we'll see you soon. Love you very much, Spodcats. Love you. You've been keeping us growing all year round. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.